Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Nevluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I have Aparna Venkatesan. I hope I pronounced that right. She's going to correct me in one minute. We talked about it before the show, but it's a tough one to pronounce. And John Barentine. Aparna is an astronomer in the Department of Physics and Astronomy and co-director of the Tracy Seeley Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of San Francisco. She works on studies of the first stars and quasars in the universe and is also actively involved in projects in cultural astronomy and space policy. She is currently, currently serves as co-chair of the American Astronomical Society's Committee to Protect Astronomy and the Space Environment, COMPASS. Professor Venkat Tessen has been recognized internationally for her research in DEI leadership, featured widely in the media, and received numerous prizes and awards. She is deeply committed to increasing the the retention of underrepresented groups in astronomy and STEM and is active in developing scientific partnerships with indigenous communities worldwide, very important for the Restoring Darkness and Night Preservation Movement. We gotta touch those people that remember things that happened thousands of years ago. I love that. John Barentine is the principal consultant at Dark Sky Consulting LLC, and was formerly the director of public policy for the International Dark Sky Association. He earned a PhD in astronomy from the University of Texas at Austin, and previously held staff positions at the National Solar Observatory, Apache Point Observatory, and the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Throughout his career, he has been involved in education and outreach efforts to help increase the public understanding of science. He is a member of the American Astronomical Society and the International Astronomical Union and is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. The asteroid 14505, Barentine, is named in his honor. His interests outside of astronomy and light pollution research include history, art and architecture, politics, law and current events. Before we go there, we have to tell you about Evluma. That's E-V-L-U-M-A.com. Evluma has a host of fixtures that are beautiful for dark sky, um, night preservation, darkness restoration, whatever you want to call it out there, folks. We're all in the same direction here. We know what we want to do. So go to Evluma.com. Aparna and John, welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Thank you for having us. No, oh, it's my pleasure. I'm going to start. There's this term that you know um, that you know was sent in the pre-show notes. Noctelgia. Um, John Aparna, which one of you wants to first unpack this term so we can discuss it a little bit more? John, go ahead. Well, Michael, this is a. a a term that Aparna and I have been thinking about for a while now in trying to move the discussion about light pollution and the changing nighttime environment on Earth uh, from something that's a little more remote and maybe technical to people and sort of something that's not part of their daily lives to appeal more to the sense of emotion and the cultural connection that humans have had to the night sky for a very long time mm. uh, and patterning off of the notion of, of solastalgia, which is a term that was invented 
some years ago to describe the the changing world that we're in, uh, mostly related to climate change, and the, the sense of loss that people are feeling, a grief about the way that the world is changing. We think there's a parallel in this to what's happening to the nighttime environment and to the night sky. And we're just trying to put a voice to that. And in the belief that words matter, we came up with a word that we think describes that feeling. Parna, do you have anything to add to that before I start asking all sorts of questions about this? <laughs> and those questions are very welcome. Yeah. And thank you, John, for getting us off to such a great start. We, as John noted, wanted to build off the idea of solastalgia, uh, which is a, a hybrid word. So we built on that idea using the Latin root noct for night and algea for environment, a Greek word. But to express sky grief for the loss of the environment of what we also think of as home, a home environment of the skies. And it's been surprising for us, and we might get into this during this time with you, how much it has reached people around the world. We wrote this to express what this movement against, you know, solvable issues of which light pollution is one. What makes it unique at this moment, because after the pandemic years and given global events uh, in the last few years and the dramatic acceleration of climate change, there's increasing loss of environment that many call home. And then there's a collective undercurrent of grief at that loss of environment on earth and grief coming out of the pandemic years. So we wanted to amplify this one thread of grief, loss of night skies and even daytime skies. So I think that would be my addition for now, but we've been moved and touched mm. at the unexpected nerve it's touched globally. I just from my from my perspective and dealing with the board at the Lighting and Darkness Foundation and people in the Restoring Darkness podcast. And John, I know that your company is called Dark Sky Consulting LLC. So I'm going to say that from the beginning. I see it right here. But I always felt like dark sky was the wrong word. Like, and, and then when we, we discussed it on the board, we liked night preservation and darkness restoration as ways to describe the actions that we're doing. But I can't think of anything that addresses the feeling or the lack that people have. Because... What you're talking about, Aparna, is really something people don't know about yet. Most people don't know that they have nostalgia. Why? Because they've never seen the Milky Way. And, and when you say, oh, it's dark, we're about dark sky, we're doing dark sky fixtures, people don't understand what you're talking about. But what we're trying to do, and, and the movement that you mentioned, John, and I've talked about a movement, is that we want to bring this back because all of our ancestors orientated themselves if you go to the indigenous cultures and you start talking to them they're all oriented to these stars in the skies and i don't know which one of you wants to take this one first but how do we incorporate the uh, 
I think it's very important that we go back to the indigenous people and incorporate their stories and their their myths and the and then our you know as as European peoples, John, incorporating our own myths back and bringing those things forward into the conversation. You know, maybe I'll ask Aparna first. How do we do that? The word nostalgia is so important, but what's the next step? I think you raised some really good points, Michael. And I, let me begin with one thing you said, which is so true. Nearly none of us even know what we're missing anymore. Mm. But I would argue, just like we know when we're unwell, if we don't have Mm. a nutritious diet, or we're simply overwhelmed with all the information we're barraged with every day from the world, we recognize, even if subconsciously, when we are not well. Uh, and I would argue that we know, we know and we feel keenly our disconnection from the skies. We just might not be able to put a name to it or put a feeling to it consciously, but we know it. Uh, simply because whenever I take students or, you know, my family or groups out to view the skies, the way people feel lifted out of themselves, Mm. the way they feel reconnected to awe and wonder. And I would say we need to be lifted out of ourselves more than ever at present Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we're so inundated constantly with stories off the world that it erases our own capacity as storytellers. When we hear so many Hmm. other stories, it's hard to become storytellers ourselves. And because it's such a privilege and joy to teach students at my university and beyond every day, I love the moment when they realize that they too are storytellers and one day they will become elders, that today they're youth, but one day they will be storytellers. In fact, they already are. And I will close with one point and hand it off to John. I completely agree that we need to return to and reclaim our timeless ways of knowing and relationship with the skies. Mm. As a cosmologist, I study ancient objects, but it's time for us to honor our ancient relationship with the skies just as much and honor, yes, indigenous sky traditions and indigenous science with the skies, but also our collective storytelling and science with the skies, including indigenous traditions in Europe. I've learned so much from many of my students of European descent who have done projects on, you know, the millennia old traditions in Central Europe or Northern Europe connecting with the skies. John? I I think all that I would add to what Aparna just said is, um, it's interesting, Michael, that you mentioned the, uh, the concern about the use of the term dark and that yes. at one time in the past, to say dark skies would not have made a lot of sense to people because there was a time before there was widespread light pollution that was mm. causing sky glow that would blot out those skies. So in other words, 
at one point in time, people said, well, of course, the sky is dark at night. And it's only a relatively recent phenomenon that it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, that said, uh, and, and you bring up how uh, it, it has more to do with the preservation of the nighttime environment or, you know, something along those lines, uh, just as a, a, a little anecdote in dealing with different cultures around the world. Uh, when I was running the International Dark Sky Places program at Dark Sky International, um, we had some folks that said, you know what, the word dark is problematic for us. Mm -hmm. There's a Native American tribe that said, we'd really, you'd rather not use the word dark in connection to our, our designation because in our culture, it connotes death. Mm -hmm. And so we said, yes, of course, we can, we'll work with you to find something that better fits and, and doesn't cause you problems. Uh, so in, in looking at the totality of the word dark or the word darkness and how it fits into this, I think it's right that we have to take a, a sort of bigger view and, and it, it connects up to the things that Aparna was saying, because that world outside of us, the bigger, broader world that we study in astronomy, it's not actually dark. It's full of light, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, words matter and, and calibrating this just right is important. Uh, and as the movement continues and we start to think about these things, how do we motivate people to care about something that they might not have ever had access to before? It's only when we take them to these places like she described and suddenly they're overwhelmed by cosmic light for the first mm, time. Yes. That they realize that it's the really only reason not they can see sky the sky all. is because it's, yes. the light is coming from them from billions or whatever years ago. You know what I mean? Yes, it's coming to them. They have to see it. Yes. They have to see it. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's, it's interesting that when many times on this show, I've been so honored to talk to people about these experiences that they've had. And it often sounds like psychedelic drugs. You know, I mean, I don't know if you hear there's like a big thing about, I mean, I don't do psychedelic drugs. I don't know anything about that. But when, when, I, uh, when I listen to these people claim that they've had this experience or that experience on psilocybin or on um, going to the jungle with, um, I can't remember the other name of the uh, um, you know, South American teas that they make, um, but it often sounds like the same as people that have had a really beautiful experience with the night sky as well. And so there's something uplifting to us and humbling or something that occurs aparna when we're able to contemplate the universe. And I'm not talking about through a telescope necessarily. That can be part of it. But sometimes it's just lying on a rock in a dark sky preserve and looking up at the Milky Way and seeing that's not a smoke from a, a fireplace or from a barbecue. No. That's the cosmos, Aparna. How do we how do we really try to bring that, incorporate that back into our dialogue? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I I think the marvels of telescopes are one avenue, but the ones we can claim without hardware or software intermediaries are very precious to us. Um, I so John and I. Uh, recently were in the Four Corners region, uh, Monument Valley, to view the annular solar eclipse. We were traveling with different groups, but we met up, and that was really wonderful because we've worked together for years, but we finally met in 3D. But we were <laughs> commenting on the quality of the skies. Now, I grew up in very 
congested, wonderful, but heavily light polluted tropical cities my whole life. And then I moved to the U.S. in my late teens. And I've lived in San Francisco a long time. And the stars by Ocean Beach are lovely sometimes, but it's still urban skies. And on my drive up to Monument Valley, ended up driving up quite late at night alone. And I pulled over on one of the roads. And when I looked up, it was dizzyingly clear. I actually had to grip the side mm. of my rental car because I had intense vertigo from mm. the richness of the sky. And John, maybe this is a familiar experience to you too. I felt like such a city person, but I had to mm. grip the side of my car. And I would say, Michael, the changes are spatial as well as temporal because it opens us up, it puts us literally in a far more spacious place, spaciousness, like, and then we remember, like how ancient we really are. Mm. Yeah, we all know that we've been through stars and supernovae many times, we know that. Mm. But to see it reminds us of our ancient selves. And also very important for the time we're living through, and I don't just say this as the mother of two teen boys, it slows us down. Mm. So it opens us up and it slows us down. So that would be my respectfully offered thoughts. John, I don't know if you have a connection to the skies you want to offer. I've had that same experience that Aparna described where it's so overwhelming as to be truly spatially disorienting, especially if anybody that's listening has ever seen the night sky um, from the surface of a body of water, mm. like the ocean, if the ocean waters are calm or a large lake where you get the reflection of all of that in the water. Uh, it's, it's very disorienting because the brain is trying to make sense of which direction at that point is up. But it's especially the case if you're coming from the kinds of city environments that most mm. of us now live in, where you just don't see that. So there's a novelty aspect to it, number one. Um, it, it, I've seen it move people deeply. For some, it's a religious experience. It, it, it bolsters a sense of the divine, uh, the sense of something greater than all of us. And at the end of the day, whether it's religious or cultural or whatever people take away from that. And, and, and it can be intensely personal. That sense of connection to something that's greater and outside of us. Sometimes I think that may be the only thing that ultimately saves our species and we confront really big problems like climate change. If we're all focused on ourselves and as Aparna suggested, kind of absorbed with what's in front of us and, and life moves very quickly and we never slow down and consider this, it's going to be very difficult for us to take on big challenges. So in a small way, I hope that restoring darkness, bringing this experience back to people, seeing that cosmic light can reorient their view of the world and may in the long run be better for all of us. I, I would argue further. I, I would argue that the relationship to the cosmos and its view from human eyes, not um, 
you know, telescopes or even binoculars are wonderful. So if you're lying in a canoe on a lake and looking up through binoculars, it's, it's wonderful. But even separate of that, I would say that the, um, the cosmos is the foundation of every religion that humans have. Um, you know, I, w- I would go further and say that, you know, there's a reason why we sent burned lamb smoke up to heaven. It wasn't because of the clouds and that and the sunshine or whatever. It was because at night people would be watching their sheep or doing whatever they're doing and sitting around fires and looking up at this unbelievable connection to the sublime. And I think there's an element, Aparna, where every human to a certain extent has lost that. And it doesn't matter where they're from or, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously living in North America, Europe. The people that come on the show are mostly Westerners in some way, regardless of their, their heritage. But in some way, we've lost that connection to the sublime. And I think that is absolutely reflective in our dialogue with one another, where we can't come together, Aparna. We can't merge our, our, our collective understandings of the universe and treat one another with the same level of respect that perhaps we used to. I don't know what happened in the past. Like, I can't, you know, I don't know what happened 100 years ago, but I have a feeling that people um, were more humble or that, that their engagement with the world had a level of sublimity to it that, it's been, that, that now we're not lacking. And you guys call it noctalgia, you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I I think what I most value about seeing the truly jeweled skies is humility. Like I just feel humbled by it mm. and I feel it induces humility. Um and yeah, the universe is our ultimate origin story. I wish more of us uh could connect to it. We are out of reach increasingly like we're having to drive farther and farther to get to truly dark skies and i wish we could we could reconnect to it and i love hearing the many many traditions around darkness as you share john sometimes it's seen as a place of death for some cultures a place of fear for other cultures a place of intense creativity and new beginnings but but either way, I think understanding each other's traditions and origin stories uh, through the cosmos and really appreciating that we've all been in this together for almost 14 billion years, really, if you think about it, our atoms have been on this wild, wonderful journey together for 14 billion years. And yeah, just hoping we can all remember that more. John, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. And I wanted to share a story about the Hokulea at the end after you. It's, uh, I think this is a, it's just a strange reflection of the times in which we live in a sense, again, that, you know, if this were a hundred or 150 years ago or more, we wouldn't have been talking about this at all. Uh, it would have been taken for have, granted, John. It's taken for granted, right? Because everybody had access to that thing. And it obviously impressed itself on people to the point that it was an everyday experience and it was woven into their culture and their, their language in some cases and, and into their uh, religions. And I don't think we ever really lost that. And even people who 
who don't think of themselves as necessarily spiritual or that they wouldn't be moved by this or wouldn't be interested in it. Uh, there's something that seems innate in us that I've seen come out in people, you know, putting on uh, when we've done star parties and that sort of thing. And, and with some of which we did just recently, as Aparna described when uh, we were in, in the Four Corners area for the eclipse and we were doing some astronomy outreach efforts. Uh, and I talked to people, as I always do, who had never seen the Milky Way before. Mm. And they they thought, oh, well, you know, you see a landscape photograph at night and uh, it it's very pretty and it's aesthetically something nice to look at. But they're, I would say, at some level, they're shocked when they actually mm -hmm. see it because they mm -hmm. don't think that can be real. In the same way that you show a person Saturn through a telescope for the first time and the usual response is, you know, is that a picture you're holding up in front of the telescope? Because it can't be real. Uh, so that, that in such a short span of time that we could have gone from the firsthand experience of a dark night sky as being something that every human really had access to at some level to something that's so almost unbelievable to people that at first they don't think it's real and that they are shocked by that. But it, it connects with something in them that I think is in all of us even those that grew up in cities uh, that never see it. And, and if we can kindle that feeling in people, I think that's what gradually will get them to start caring about this issue and realizing that the whole uh, the, the concern about light pollution and its causes and solutions and all of that is not an either or. We don't have to have either modernity or you know dark night skies. That There's a way that we can have both of those things. Oh, yeah. But first people have to be aware that that's even a possibility. I think we have to, ha we have to must have both of those things. Like I, I would argue that there's no other option for us. Um, you mentioned a couple of things. I would add to that, John, that all of our architecture from antiquity is all oriented to the night sky. And, and then the, you add in the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, and this blows people's minds. If you've never, I've only seen them three times in my life. Um, and I saw them once on the horizon. It was just like a glow. And I was on a military base in, in, in Trenton, Ontario. And the guys, that's the Northern Lights. I was on a fire picket when I was in Air Cadets when I was a teenager. And he's like, that's the Northern Lights. I'm like, that's not the Northern Lights. That's it. He's like, that's the Northern Lights. But it's on the horizon. You can't, if we were further north, it would be higher in the sky. And so, I, you know, we've seen these things. Um, I talked to a, um, a, uh, what do you would call it, a medieval, uh, what was, I can't remember what it was, but I asked her, like, how did they figure out that the earth revolved around the sun? Like, when, what was the actual technical thing? They figured it out because of calculus and math, right? So when they, when they started, they were tracking these celestial bodies, nothing made sense, and when, once they applied mathematics to it, and they're like, oh, hang on a second, the earth revolves around the sun. And Pope, sit down for a second, Pope. We got to tell you something. And the moon revolves around the earth and all this stuff. So um, when we did, how do we go beyond math, Aparna, where now we need to scientifically reconnect, like in a scientific way, you know, with, with not just hokey pokey spirituality, but we need to tell people, we need to tell the people of the planet Earth that we need to connect with the heavens. And it's, this is a very important for a lot of reasons. How do we, how do we bring the math and the science and everything into that argument to reconnect with, with the beauty of the universe? How do we do that? Yeah, 
I know it doesn't make for a neat line item and a budget for federal agencies. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but I would say this is an ineffable and precious quality of being human. And I want to build mm -hmm. off something that John said earlier, which is this kind of siloing of issues Another siloing. I'm sure you've heard, you know, pitching things as this versus that. Uh, it doesn't need to be that way. Um, I Maybe if there's time today, John could also comment on the, uh, you know, uh, incorrect pitching of issues as uh, mitigating light pollution, responsible outdoor lighting versus safety, right? That's also mm. a false uh you know, binary view of things. It doesn't need to be that way. And if there's time for that, he's the expert on that and could comment on that. But to address your question, Michael, I would say when we look on the millennial old sky traditions that all cultures have had and particularly indigenous communities, we see a seamless integration of science, art, storytelling, culture, and language. So one of the reasons we coined Noctalgia is when we take away the home environment of our shared skies, a lot of our identity and language goes away with it. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that science and culture and language and storytelling have been seamlessly integrated for all our ancestors mm. uh, and that the way things have separated out today is an artifact of our modern times but it's not necessarily an artifact we can't invite into this dialogue for example a number of communities on Mauna Kea native Hawaiian communities are working with astronomers to name discoveries made with telescopes on Mauna Kea in the native Hawaiian language, which in my mind is a wonderful way to honor that science and language and culture can happen at the same time. It's also a wonderful opportunity for modern astronomy to be a living platform for the native Hawaiian language. We become relevant for more than just the astronomy community in academe, we become relevant to Native Hawaiian youth. So I would say that honoring, that integrating all of these aspects as something that makes us deeply human is very precious. It's a unique quality of our species. And I think that's the way to proceed. Mm. You know, I, I, I could, I, one of the things that I've always wanted to say, and I've never said it before, and I don't know if people are going to get mad at me, but we're all indigenous to the earth, right? And, and so when, we, when we, we don't take into account other cultures' stories about, you know, whatever it is, whether you want to consider that a religion specifically or, 
you know, there's all manner of stories that our ancestors, and they're all of our ancestors. At the end of the day, we all come back from one place. And these people have spread out about the world. And so we should definitely work towards what you were talking about on th- places like Hawaii and northern Canada and places where these communities and their languages and their descriptions of these celestial processes exist. We absolutely have to incorporate that into this. John, um, how can you add to what Aparna just said and in terms of from a scientific perspective? Like how do we bring it in? Because there's a, there's a research perspective, which I think we don't need anymore. There's a technical perspective, which we can make the lights we need. There's the controls argument, which we have the controls that we need. You understand what I mean? We can do the Bluetooth connectivity, whatever it, wire, whatever it is, internet over power line, however we're going to connect these things to accomplish this. How do you bring it home? Michael, I think we have to make arguments that are beyond all of that, beyond science and technology, because that does not move people. Um, we're seeing this play out with other social and environmental concerns. Um, you know, climate change is a great example of that. You can throw science against the wall all day long and people don't feel in the core of their being that the world is changing in a way that affects them at least not to the level that they're prepared to make many sacrifices in order to assure a different outcome. Um, I have long said that we've got to have lots of tools in our kit in terms of communicating these ideas about darkness in the night sky and the value of those things to people. And science is certainly one of them. We're fortunate to be in a time when we now have a great deal of scientific evidence relating to these concerns. And as I like to say, uh, the the compass needle increasingly points only in one direction, and that is that all of this artificial light in the nighttime environment is harmful to that environment and the organisms that inhabit Mm. it. Um, There are still some some unanswered questions, as there will always be, and we'll continue to fill in the gaps, but the scientific basis is very strong. At the same time, we're not lacking a technical solution here. No. We're not waiting for technology to solve this problem. Nope. The one and only piece that we're missing is the will to do something mm-hmm. about it. Amen. And that's where we have just not climbed yet to the top of this hill. That's where I think we have to appeal to emotion as much as reason, uh, to the heart as much as to the head. And where I think we can do that, and there's a little bit of diplomacy in this, is this notion that in, in this era in which we live, there are very few things that connect us. Yes, we're all indigenous to the earth in a sense. All humans are related. We have a, apparently a common origin. Uh, so there's literally more that connects us than divides us in that sense. But of course, we've diversified into nations and tribes and, and uh, societies all over the world. But the sky, the night sky is one of the few things that is common to all of us. There's not an American night sky and a Russian mm. night sky and a Chinese night sky. They have traditions where they project their folklore onto it, mm-hmm. but there's just one night sky. I had a really fascinating experience about 10 years ago when I visited Korea in the run-up to the establishment of the first international dark sky park in East Asia. And I was out in very, very rural South Korea, one of the, the least populated of its counties at a facility where they had built an observatory and they were trying to bring in these these people from the countryside that didn't have access to a lot of economic opportunities, advanced educational opportunities, but they wanted to share with them the night sky 
and the Korean folklore about it. And I'm with a group of Korean astronomers who don't speak English. Fortunately, we have interpreters. But the amazing thing was we were able to stand there under the open roof of the observatory, looking out into the night sky. And I would point at a group of stars and say, my culture uh, sees this figure. And I would ask them, "What? tell me about your story for that same group of stars. And they would get really excited. And through the interpreter, they would tell me what the Korean folklore was about a group of stars. And we were forging a connection, a deep connection between people who did not speak a common language, right? There's, there's plenty to divide us in this world, but there are few things like that that bring us together. If we can play up that aspect in these divided times, I think that we can solve this problem and a lot of others, but we have to be open to the possibility of solving it in the first place. The, you, you brought up the idea of the heart and the head. Um, I'm not clear what there is ahead. I think there's only a heart. I don't think I don't think people make rational decisions. I mean, like when you we were talking about, you know, generational issues. I don't think people think rationally about these things. Like they're they're somebody that goes to their car in the morning to drive to work is thinking about climate change. They're they're only working with their heart. I think what the people of the world are telling us is that we want clean energy and we want to use as much of it as we want to use. And we need to use to care for one another, to do the things that we want to do. And so I, I find there's, there's this kind of, um, and, and, you know, maybe I'm going to expose myself as some kind of, um, you know, anti-climate change guy or whatever, um, you know, which certainly not. Um, but, you know, I think it needs to be turned around and the pressure needs to be put back from the citizenry on the utilities which create all the light pollution. So most light pollution is created from streetlights, okay? Streetlights are a huge problem, and those belong to the utilities. They don't belong to the individual homeowner over here or this person over there. On top of that, the utilities are the ones buying the energy, and they're buying it from gas or coal or Nuclear in Ontario is largely nuclear and hydro, and Quebec is all hydro. We have these different jurisdictions that produce energy in different ways. And I think we have to change the argument with, with, from sacrifices, which we may or may not have to make. I don't know, John. But we have to change the argument to push the other way. To say to our scientists, Aparna, that you guys have to develop these technologies. We're not going to make any sacrifices. And I think that's what the people are telling you. Aparna, they're telling you that we don't want to live out of abundance. We want to stay in abundance. How do we, how do, we do that? I think we do that, Aparna, by first the, first, the number one way to mitigate climate change that we know of right now is to install dark sky friendly lighting across the world. That would save a ton of energy and it would give us access to our heritage. I think we could use it as an example where instead of blaming the people and asking them to pay, we turn it back on the lighting industry and say, you guys fix this. The lighting industry should fix this. What do you think about that, Aparna? Yeah, I think accountability is key. And so John serves in this uh, national group for our professional society, Compass, along with me. 
And we have many uh, subgroups, one of which is light pollution, in which there are some lighting engineers. And I've learned so much talking to them and many experts. I absolutely agree. The problem in some ways is global, but also local. So locally, yeah, mm -hmm. pressuring companies for what's an eminently solvable problem, right? Mm -hmm. The world is facing some intractable crises right now, but this is not one of them. Nope. And that perhaps adds an extra edge of it being maddening because we know it's solvable. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, asking for better lighting solutions, but it's a very complex path with, you know, local communities and, you know, local city leadership, which take, you know, has many levels. And I'd love for John to comment on that because he's been involved a lot with initiatives in Arizona and elsewhere. But I would say this problem is local, but it is quickly becoming global as well. So for example, even if I live in a fairly dark community, but I rely on farming, the pollinators um, don't arrive in the same numbers and at the same times anymore because of light pollution from beyond my community. So my community, even if it's relatively dark, can be impacted by broader uh, choices by people not living in my community. I ran into the lot talking with tribal Native American tribal communities. People are very concerned about dwindling pollinators and food sovereignty uh, that arises from not having enough pollinators. So I would say there's power in adapting a national strategy to local conditions. Mm. That is a we need to take because every community will need some adaptation and will make different choices based on where they are. But we are so connected that the changing wind and ocean currents, the flooding, the fires, we are all now getting smoke that's not really ours from distant fires. And just mm. similar to that, we are getting consequences of light pollution that are not really ours. So I think I'll just end on sharing and then want to hand it off to John. What John and I have really tried to do in our work is to invite people into advocacy with hope, because mm. it's very important to us right now in a time of nonstop crisis, and I would say widespread crisis fatigue, especially mm. after the past sure. years one war after another starting, people are tired. And the students I teach, I want them to feel they have a future to look forward to. So inviting them into the story and conveying that story as still unfolding, needing their voices, mm -hmm. needing their voices, the voices of the future, owning that there's a lot of crises that my and previous generations have caused, but inviting them into hope and into a story that's still unfolding has, has been my approach, which John and I are very aligned on. So. John, Aparna's talking about empowering a generation to um, make change. Um, and if I may paraphrase you, um, 
what she's saying is that, yeah, there's a lot of negativity out there, actually. And when it comes to whether it's Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Palestine, climate change, nobody, you never hear anybody saying, I have the solution to this problem, right? Like that, that, that nobody ever puts up their hand and you never hear that, right? But with this, we need to put up our hand, John, because we have the solution. We know what to do. It can be done. But the lighting industry has to lead it. John, I'm going to change Aparna's question to you. Why is the lighting industry so hesitant to lead on this issue? Well, Michael, I, I don't fully agree that the lighting industry isn't leading. And the lighting industry, as within any industry, is re it's reacting to both markets and regulation, right? It it's a business. It wants to sell things in order to make a profit. That's what businesses do. Uh, society puts certain limits around that through laws. And there is a push-pull between those things. I would also say there's a third actor in all of this, which is the Dark Skies movement and organizations like Dark Sky International that have been applying pressure steadily for the last few decades. And they are achieving some results. Uh, I would say that there are vastly more products on the outdoor lighting market now than there once were that are more generally friendly to the night sky in the sense that they're that's a, I would disagree with you. That's 100% well, wrong. Well, I mean, John, I, I hate to I, say well, it to you. We're going to have to agree but, to disagree. But, but I mean, Ruskin, listen, hang like on a that. second, hang on a second. Ruskin Hartley All said right. on a podcast from May with Randy Reed, the light pollution is going up by 10% a year. If we keep consuming light, it won't make a difference whether those lighting products are good or not. That's a separate matter. Our endless demand for things. I'll turn the question around on you about, you said, how do we stay in abundance? Abundance mm -hmm. means waste, right? I'll tell you that one of the parts of the world where lighting is rising the fastest right now that mm -hmm. we know from satellite remote sensing data is Africa, specifically Sub-Saharan Africa which on the map of the world at night right now doesn't look very bright, but it's changing there more quickly than anywhere. And in some cases, the reason for that is that electrification continues to proceed and that as economies grow, they want visible manifestations of their success. And leaving the lights in your city on all night is a marker that you have made it. You can afford to waste something. Far be it from us to tell Africa what to do with their lights because there's a terrible history of, of colonization in the past. So we can, I suppose we can tell them that maybe this isn't the best way to go about things, but it's up for them to make those decisions. If there is this endless demand for something and people are happy to waste it because they perceive that it is cheap and that it has no downside, then this will continue uh, unabated. Uh, so yeah, the world is, is brightening very quickly. And I will contend at the same time, there is more available on the lighting market now than there has ever been, which if properly implemented, could reverse this trend. LED, for example, since it's often identified as, as the villain in this story, I think that LED could save the world if it were properly implemented, but it's not, right? Who do we have to change their minds? Is it the public? Is it lighting designers? Is it the industry? Is it regulators? It's all of those groups of people if we want a better outcome here. 
So, I, I mean, I, I totally get the sense, you know, we're, we're involved in crisis fatigue. The world seems to be falling apart around us. Humanity desperately needs a win of some kind. Light pollution is one of the very few environmental challenges that I think we actually stand a chance of solving this problem in our lifetimes because we have the technical means to do so and we're only missing the will. If we did it, what a win that would be for all people. It would show us that we can take on these big issues and we can solve these problems when we decide that there's a problem to be solved and that we want it to be solved. I I think that's a great place to close. <laughs> we, we need a win. We need yes. a win. So yes. right. And I wanted to respectfully offer as we close. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be here mm. with you, Michael, and I'm grateful as always, John, to collaborate and partner with you. Yes. And so much of this, I love the restoring the darkness because it says we were there once and let's go mm. back there. Much of this is a process of reclamation of our mm. timeless knowledge of our ancient selves. And I think as we lose a lot of place because of many reasons, climate change, human activities, human choices, and more, I, I would just offer respectfully, I find we can, I think we can find ways forward if we think of ourselves as belonging to place rather than place belonging to us. Mm. I think we will find a way to connect and move forward collaboratively. We'll take the long view. Aparna is gonna is gonna come up with some kind of spiritual science. I'm telling you, John, she's gonna come up with like math that proves that this is good. Um, folks, if you're listening to this right now, I want you to go to RestoringDarkness.com, and I want you to think about making a donation to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. Why? Well, you know what we do. We're creating educational programs for the lighting industry. That's right, to teach people who sell lighting every day how, why, what, for what reason we should do this and to educate them. And so we're doing that right now. We're also uh, helping out people with uh, municipal uh, ordinance battles and, and, and so on and so forth. And we want to fund research into the safety argument. That's right, this idea, the straw man, that more light equals more safety. We need to figure that one out. So go to restoringdarkness.com. You can click the donate link. We're working on it. We're making our website better all the time, folks. So go to restoringdarkness.com. I'd also like you to consider Evluma. Go to evluma.com. And of course, I'd like to thank Aparna Venkatesan. There, I think I got it there. And John Barentine for being guests on the Restoring Darkness podcast. All you all there, I love you guys. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe as well. All that kind of thing. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.